Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Keen-eyed visitors to America's Supreme Court will notice a menagerie of curious critters peering down at them. Turtles. They hold up lampposts and sit snugly on the stony facade, serving as a reminder of the slow and steady pace of justice. But last term, the court itself moved at a remarkable speed and radically tipped the scales. News from the U.S. Supreme Court in the last couple of hours, which has ruled that Americans do have a fundamental right to carry firearms in public. Oh, yeah, it's an 89-page decision. It is six to three, and it is a big win, arguably, for the fossil fuel industry uh, the Supreme Court of the United States overturning a, an appeals court ruling. 50 years of a legally enshrined right to abortion in the United States has been brought to an end after the country's Supreme Court decided to overturn its landmark ruling made in 1973. The it justices is- eliminated the constitutional right to abortion, loosened gun laws, curbed the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to regulate carbon emissions, and eroded the separation of church and state. A new term is right around the corner, and the docket doesn't lighten. Affirmative action, voting rights, and more environmental cases are on the agenda. And though a new justice will sit on the bench, Ketanji Brown-Jackson replaces Stephen Breyer, the cases will be heard by a familiar margin. Six conservatives and three liberals. This is The Economist Asks. I'm John Fassman, in for Ann McElvoy. And this week we're asking, what can America expect from the Supreme Court's next term? My guest is Eric Siegel. He's a law professor at Georgia State University. And before that, he worked for the Department of Justice and clerked for federal judges. He's also the author of a number of law review articles and books, including his most recent, Originalism is Faith, which explores the judicial philosophy that interprets the Constitution's meaning as it would have been understood when it was written. Originalism played a role in some of the seismic rulings of the last term, and it's set to shape future ones, too. Eric Siegel, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very flattered to be here. Let's start with a broad question about the current court. If you look back, the Warren Court, so the Supreme Court that Chief Justice Warren led from 53 to 69, is sort of the foundational mid-20th century liberal court. During those years, the court ruled that segregation was unlawful, that police have to tell suspects they have a right to an attorney and to stay silent, and that legislative districts within a state have to comprise roughly equal populations. It changed America in a number of ways. Do you think that future generations will look back on today's court with Chief Justice Roberts and its 6-3 conservative majority as equally consequential? I think there's no question this last term was one of the most consequential in Supreme Court history. With abortion, two big religion cases, the Administrative Procedure Act case, and the gun case, what I hope, which is different than what I expect, is that 30, 40, 50 years from now, 
this reign of the Roberts Court will be looked at with disdain. But I have to say, I also personally don't think the Warren Court was a good thing for America. So my critique of a strong Supreme Court is not partisan, even though I do want to identify myself as a progressive. I think my critique of the court is nonpartisan. For example, you mentioned one person, one vote, Reynolds versus Sims. Almost every liberal in the country would applaud that decision. Obviously, I think that's a good policy, and I would write it into the Constitution. But there's no method of constitutional interpretation I can accept that gets us to one person, one vote. So you think the Warren Court was not a good thing, not because of the conclusions it reached, but because of the way it reached them? I think the Supreme Court of the United States is way too important in the lives of Americans and in American elections. Richard Nixon ran against the Warren Court. Even Ronald Reagan, many years later, ran against the Warren Court. And of course, Donald Trump had that famous list, which I think was the most important factor in him being elected president, given that one in five voters who voted for Trump said the most important issue to them was the Supreme Court. I don't think unelected, life-tenured Ivy League lawyers should play this important a role on either side of the political equation. So how do you decrease the salience of the Supreme Court in the lives of ordinary Americans? Governmental officials don't generally give up power. That's a pretty rare thing. And we have a long history of this. It's not just the Warren Court. We can go back to Dred Scott in 1857. We can go back to the legal tender cases in 1870, we can go back to the court misreading the 14th Amendment to protect railroads instead of African-Americans. We can go to the Lochner Court of 30 years of striking down laws dealing with labor and minimum wages and overtime rules. So you ask a very difficult question. I think that just as the court of the 1930s was flirting with danger when FDR proposed his court packing plan, which effectively worked. I think this court is flirting with being so far to the right of the median American voter that there may be some ways for politicians to kind of beat this court into submission. But I don't know if the political will is there. I don't think President Biden is the president to do it. A lot depends on the upcoming elections. So I want to park that for a minute and come back to that. For now, I want to look at the philosophy that you've written a great deal about and that I think guides a lot of this court's actions, at least as they see it. I think we can't really discuss the court without at least asking, what is originalism? How and when did it originate? And how did it become such a powerful judicial theory? So first of all, I want to say I don't think it's a powerful theory and I don't think it explains the court's decisions, but I'll circle back to that. Okay. Originalism as such really began in the 1970s with Robert Bork and a legal academic named Raoul Berger and some other people who were responding to what they viewed as the excesses of the Warren Court. Roe versus Wade, Miranda, to some extent, one person, one vote. And, you know, there were some people still in the late 60s, including Raoul Berger, who thought Brown was wrongly decided because it can't be justified on an originalist basis. But here's something that's a real misunderstanding about the history of originalism. Originalism was not the end. It was a tool. It was a tool to constrain judges. It was a tool to make the Supreme Court 
do less. Now, I don't know what Robert Bork would have done if he ever got in the Supreme Court. But as a scholar and an academic, that was his raison d'etre, to limit the discretion of judges. What changed was after eight years of Ronald Reagan and four years of George Bush, we had 12 years of conservative judges and justices. Starting in the early 1990s, conservatives who now own the courts wanted to strike down a lot of laws, but they didn't want to give up the label originalism. They wanted to keep the political label, but they wanted to give up the constraint. So people like Randy Barnett at Georgetown, Keith Whittington, who's a historian, political scientist at Princeton, but a very influential constitutional law voice, Larry Solemn, now at University of Virginia, began this new originalism idea, which isn't originalism at all. And this new originalism basically allows judges all the discretion they want to strike down whatever laws they want to, because reference to text and history is simply not constraining. And in fact, here are the people, some of the many people, who think text and history don't describe constitutional law and shouldn't describe constitutional law. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Richard Posner, Anthony Kennedy, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, Mark Tushnet, Mike Dorff, Adrian Vermeule from the far right. All of these people who are the most brilliant minds of their generations, spanning 100 years, have all come to the conclusion that text and history is simply a camouflage for the imposition of the justices' values. And we saw that this term And we've seen that with the career of Justice Thomas. And if he serves six more years, will be the longest serving justice in American history. And he probably will serve six more years. It just so happens that if you take Justice Thomas's constitutional law decisions, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of dozens that we care about, they line up perfectly with Republican Party platforms. I also want to say that if you look at the constitutional law decisions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 99% line up with the Democratic Party. And if you look at the constitutional law decisions of people like Kennedy, O'Connor, Souter, Blackman, and White, they were moderates. So their decisions were, guess what? Moderate. Text and history really have almost nothing to do with it. So in that argument, originalism is a sort of veneer, right? It's a way of presenting to the public the notion that justices are reaching their conclusion, not based on their personal whim or preferences, but based on the Constitution, its text, and its history, that this is a way of shoring up faith in the court. Isn't that a good thing? Shouldn't we want the public to have faith in the court? John, that's a complicated question. I don't think I want the public to continue to have faith in the Supreme Court because it has been since 1857, pretty much a broken institution. And the reason why is not complicated. I have what I call a golden rule of democracy. And I would be surprised if any person listening to this, liberal, moderate, or conservative, would disagree with this golden rule. Never, ever in a free country give government officials basically unreviewable power for life. Who does that? Nobody does that. No no such institution exists in England, France, Spain, Portugal. Don't give government officials a job for life and then give them a lot of power. 
It's crazy. Now, I want to be transparent about something. I work for the state of Georgia. I teach at a state university. Unless I do something terrible, I have a job for life, which is probably a mistake. But I have no power. Nothing I do matters, really. But these government officials define who we are as America. Don't give them unreviewable power for life. So what is the alternative? Is the alternative to just accept that the justices are political creatures and and make it a tooth and nail political fight? Is the alternative to somehow clip the Supreme Court's power? And if that's true, how do you clip it? What is the alternative to where we are now? So, John, I, I, I do a lot of radio, as you know, and sometimes I say that's a great question and I can't give you a soundbite answer. <laughs> and that's the truth about this question. So if you don't mind, it has to be a fairly longish answer. Let's do it. I want to go back to before the Constitution was ratified, and it was being debated in New York and other places. And a guy named Brutus, that was his pen name, said we should not ratify this Constitution. And he gave a lot of reasons, not just about the Supreme Court. But one of his main reasons was he saw what would happen. He said, if you give judges the power to veto laws and give them life tenure, they will feel free of heaven itself. He thought it was a terrible idea. Alexander Hamilton responded to this in Federalist Number 78, the Federalist Papers. His response was really good. He said, first of all, they have neither purse nor sword, meaning they have no money and no army. So if the justices get too far ahead of the, or behind the American people, the president might not enforce their orders. But he said a more important thing. He said what everyone at the time thought, and this is the great irony of originalism today. If you really are a true originalist, meaning you care what the founding fathers thought, then what they thought about judicial review was that it would be modest, limited, and only used upon clear constitutional error. Or what Alexander Hamilton specifically said, which is only when there's an irreconcilable variance between a statute and the Constitution, which describes almost none of the cases that Americans care about where laws are struck down. So that, I think, is the answer. We need to figure out a way to have extremely deferential and limited judicial review. I don't quote Alexander Hamilton because I'm an originalist or because that's what the founding fathers thought. I quote him because he was thinking about this in a Rawlsian veil of ignorance, not knowing who was going to be on whose side. And without knowing if his judges would be appointed or not, because of course he was a strong federalist and the political factions were very divided. But in the world that was coming, he said, this only works if judicial review is limited and modest. That's what we need. How to get from here to there is a very complicated and difficult question. So what do you think Hamilton and the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution would think of the people on the court today who claim to be acting in their interests, who claim to be originalists? They would think they're nuts. These were all white propertied men who were trying to do something extraordinary, create a new country that was going to be more of a free country than almost any country in the history of time. And they were scrambling. They disagreed on everything. They were just trying to get through. If you had said to them, when they wrote the president has to be 35, they would have expected the president to be at least 35 forever until the Constitution was formally amended. 
But if you said to them, do you think the phrase establishment of religion or freedom of speech or due process should be frozen at this time for the next 200 years, they would have thought you were insane. Because they understood that those concepts would evolve in ways that they could not foresee. Is that why? That's one of the reasons. Another reason is the parts of the Constitution that get litigated, not the very clear parts, are incredibly imprecise. And as times change, they knew the country's values would change and the Constitution would have to change with it. Now, let me be clear. I think that most constitutional change in Siegel's world should come from the elected branches, not the Supreme Court of the United States. But if you had said to Hamilton, sorry, buddy, you got it wrong. (laughs) They're not going to do modest and limited judicial review. They're going to have very strong judicial review. Do you want in the year 2022, 1791 values, or do you want 2022 values? His answer would have been 2022. Jefferson explicitly said this. You know, a constitution should last maybe 19 years or 18 years. I forget what he said. They disagreed on most things, but they would have agreed on this. What do you think of the Richard Primus theory that originalism is a technology of legal change and as such could be useful to progressives if they ever comprise a majority on the court? Do you think that makes sense? Is that just another blow against the philosophy of originalism in your view? I have a lot of respect for Professor Primus. I think he is terrific. I have a lot of respect for the Constitutional Accountability Center which is a special interest group in Washington, D.C., that wants to use originalism for liberal causes, kind of like what Richard was saying. I think that's all just a smokescreen. It's all values. It's inevitably values. Let me pivot now from philosophy to this court's upcoming term. There are a few marquee cases I'm going to mention really quickly. There are a couple of cases challenging the consideration of race in college admissions. There's Moore v. Harper, which looks at state legislature's power in federal elections. There's 303 Creative versus Alenis, which is a free speech case of a web designer who says she couldn't be forced to create websites for same-sex weddings. A whole bunch of stuff. It starts in October. What do you expect to see from the upcoming term, and, and, and what's at stake? There's a tremendous amount at stake. The obvious cases to predict and the ones where there's no suspense, is the court is going to make affirmative action illegal across the United States. And going back to originalism, first of all, the word race is not mentioned in the Equal Protection Clause. Now, we know what the Equal Protection Clause was designed to do. It was meant to help blacks. They're going to use it to hurt African-Americans and other people of color. But there's no suspense. After this term, we know exactly what they're going to do. And I want to make a point. Justice Thomas has voted to strike down every affirmative action plan he's ever seen, no exceptions. And he's written lots of words with one exception, which is a state law case under a state constitution in 1865. He has never discussed the original meaning of the 14th Amendment while voting to strike down these kind of programs. Justice Scalia, in his long career, never said one syllable about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. And he struck down every affirmative action plan he ever encountered. So to the extent that we think originalism is real, there's an example where it's obviously not. That's going to have a major effect on America. Now, I will tell you that a few years ago, two cases called Fisher versus Texas, one and two, and everybody thought the court was going to end affirmative action then, 
Justice Kennedy surprisingly changed his mind on those. I actually, in anticipation of the court doing then what they're going to do next year, I interviewed a bunch of admissions officers at schools in the Northeast, fairly elite schools. And I had to tell you, they said they won't follow it. They said they'll find a way. Their belief that they want a diverse class, a racially, ethnically, politically, geographically diverse class, they're going to find a way to do that no matter what the Supreme Court says. Affirmative action has been illegal in Michigan and California for a long time because they passed state constitutional amendments to that effect. I'm telling you, those universities still use a racial criteria. So um, there's going to be a big hoopla about it, and it's going to be very important, but there's not much suspense. The more important case, of course, and what could decide the future of America is the independent legislature case. That's Moore v. Harper, right? That's Moore versus Harper. And it's really complicated and hard. But if the Supreme Court decides that state Supreme Courts have no jurisdiction to enforce state constitutions when it comes to voting rights, when they're contrasted with the state legislatures. I mean, Trump would have gotten back in office if state Supreme Courts probably hadn't intervened. This is all setting up either a Trump or a DeSantis run for the presidency. And if they rule that state Supreme Courts can't override state legislatures based on state constitutional election values, this country's in deep trouble. Do you think that is how they're going to rule? I mean, if, if, if it's true that justices rule in accord with their political preference and this helps Donald Trump return to office, helps Republican get elected president, do you think they will rule in favor of the state legislature theory? I think it depends on the state of American politics at the time. I have a question for, for you and for the listeners. I don't know the answer to this. I'm a severe critic of Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch. I find it hard to believe they really want Donald Trump to be president again. Now, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe I'm being silly. Listen, if those three people want Donald Trump to be president again, then we're in so much trouble. <laughs> I don't think anything can save us. So it depends on what's happening politically. If there were a moderate Republican who has some steam come June, I think that's a very different world than if it's Donald Trump. What other cases do you think are at risk from this court? In, in your book, Originalism is Faith, you mentioned 10 landmark decisions that found, among other things, that school prayer and laws banning interracial marriage and the sale of contraception are unconstitutional. We mentioned criminal defendants having the right to a state paid attorney, the libel standard for public figures. How many of them do you think are at risk of being overturned by, by this court? I think very few. The only person so far who suggested that New York Times versus Sullivan should be maybe reconsidered, I think, is Justice Thomas. I might be wrong about that, but I think he's the only one. They're not going to overturn Gideon versus Wainwright, which says you have a right to an attorney if you can't afford one. Now, then again, last term was a surprise in its extremeness, but I just would be very surprised about all that. What the court has already done, though, is loosened the restrictions on prayer in school. We saw that this term. I suspect the cases that said no prayers at graduation ceremonies and no prayers at football games, I think those are going to be overturned sometime in the next zero to five years. I don't think the classroom prayer cases will be overturned. One person, one vote is not going anywhere. We've already seen that from a case a couple of years ago. 
I hope and I think same-sex marriage will be preserved. But every other issue involving gay rights, I suspect gays and lesbians will lose for a very long time. And that is because of the political inclinations of the justices on the court right now. When people heard what I said, they're going to say, wait a minute, Siegel, Justice Gorsuch, you know, voted that Title VII applies to gays and lesbians and the conservatives went crazy about that. But that was a statutory interpretation case. And even in that case, Gorsuch carved out religion. I think most of the issues involving gay rights will come down to a kind of balancing between gay rights and people who have religious objections to gay rights. If there's one thing we know about the Roberts Court, religion always wins. So if there's a conflict between those two, religion is going to win. And by the way, that is also not a good faith reading of text and history. There are six incredibly religious people on the Supreme Court right now. They're going to impose their very religious values and why anybody would think otherwise is crazy. And so in that view, 303 Creative via Lenis, the case about making a website for a gay wedding, that gets decided in favor of the website designer who didn't want to make it, which effectively guts Masterpiece Cake Shop, right? That case is only a free speech case, is my understanding. And I've said from the first minute that Masterpiece Cake Shop came into the public eye, I think the issues of wedding florists, wedding cake designers, and all that are very difficult under the First Amendment, free speech clause. They're incredibly easy to me under the establishment and free exercise clauses. There should be no valid religious objection recognized by the court. But if you make a uh, florist provide flowers to a wedding, are you going to make a singer do that? Are you going to make a poet do that? I think those are very hard cases under the free speech clause. But the case next term has been limited to free speech, not religion. Let's move on to the last section of our, our talk, which is Supreme Court legitimacy and reform. There's a recent poll by Gallup that showed public support for the court was at an all-time low, about 25%. Should the justices care about how the public views them? Yes. If for no other reason, then should the Democrats, if there was a political revolution of some kind, and they controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency, I think at this point the Democrats would actually pass court reform measures. Of course, that requires 60 votes in the Senate or the willingness to undo the filibuster. It also requires Democrats perceiving that's what the American people want. Now, we're heading there. The referendum in Kansas about abortion a few weeks ago, where Kansas, a red state voting for Trump and all that, made it very clear by a wide margin that they want you know, abortion to be legal, at least in the first trimester, in that state. Barry Friedman is the go-to guy when it comes to public sentiment and the Supreme Court. He wrote a great book about it. And Barry, in that book, a few years ago, wrote, and I agree with this, that the Supreme Court very rarely strays from left of center to right of center because they, were, they know they have no person's sword. I mean, Hamilton was pretty wise about that. Barry thinks this court may end up two or three standard deviations away from the center. And if that happens, there's going to be a political pushback. I had one more comment to that. In the very long run, I think Dobbs is going to hurt the Republican Party dramatically. And in the very long run, I think the right of women to control their destinies will actually be legislatively protected 
in most of America eventually, because that's what the American people want. And politicians are going to recognize that. I do think there's going to be a big pushback to this Supreme Court. How much? Only time will tell. I want to pull a thread out of your previous answer. You mentioned court reform. Let's say that the Democrats do control both houses and they have enough juice to pass court reform. And the president asks you to head up the commission recommending what reforms to impose. What would you like to see in the short run and long run? So, John, I feel that we'll never get a constitutional amendment passed to end life tenure or something like that. So if we could, I would do that, obviously. But assuming constitutional amendments are off the table, I would go back to the reform I proposed and liberals got so mad at me and progressives got so mad at me in 2016 after Justice Scalia passed away. And I said, we should freeze the court at an even number of justices from both sides. I think that would lead to more consensus decision-making, more compromise, more narrow decisions. And in every case, it would mean one Republican would have to side with the Democrats or one Democrat would have to side with the Republicans if the court wanted to keep power. And we know the court wants to keep power. That does not require a constitutional amendment. We always knew, but now know, that the Senate does not have to give a hearing to Supreme Court nominees. And the filibuster which still exists for statutes, has been the rule for over a century by nothing more than agreement of the two political parties. So real quick, imagine Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell standing in front of the American people with hands raised, saying, you know what? We're done fighting about this. We're going to have an evenly divided Supreme Court for the rest of time for bipartisanship sake, to weaken the court a little bit because we both think it's too strong and we disagree over which cases, but we both think it's too strong. And that reform, when I have talked to non-lawyers who are informed about American politics, they love it. The only people against it are con law professors because it takes away their turf because the Supreme Court will do less. (laughs) From your mouth to God's ear. (laughs) Eric Siegel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so flattered to be here. And please do let us know what you think of the show. What reforms would you make to the Supreme Court? What do you expect from the court in the next term? You can write to us at podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. Eric and I discussed the role originalism plays in judicial decision-making. And this week, our Supreme Court correspondent, Stephen Maisie, takes a deeper dive into the philosophy. To read his reporting and much more from one First Street Northeast and beyond, head to The Economist website. To enjoy all our journalism, why not take advantage of our special introductory offer just for our podcast listeners? Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling Condon. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm John Fastman, And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.